Hello! Welcome to Ghosts Were People Too, a podcast that investigates ghosts through the lens of the arts and humanities. I'm Annabelle. And I'm caught off guard. I did not expect that intro. <laughs> this is Quest. This is part two of our Ghostbusters 1984 extravaganza. Yeah. And in this episode, we are going to be covering all of the things that we didn't get to in episode one. We're, we're going to a lot of places. Yeah, we're looking at Ghostbusters through a bunch of different lenses, and we're going to find a bunch of different readings that will hopefully enhance your viewing experience. Because if you remember, we didn't have a great viewing experience, either one of us. Right, so in part one, we talked about our initial responses to the film gave brief reviews and we also looked at feminist theory and we looked at the film through a feminist lens and we also talked about nostalgia and And fandom yeah and now we're going to put those on pause they'll definitely come up again i'm sure we find that all of these readings do eventually encroach upon one another But today we're going to look at some other interpretations, some other things you can find in the mess that Dan Aykroyd made for us. Ew. (laughs) Um, So we're going to start off by talking about immigration, invaders, and Orientalism, because... As we mentioned in episode one, the ghosts in this film are not so much the dead returned, although maybe the first ghost could be considered, the library ghost could be considered the dearly departed. But most of them are these nasty little monsters who happen to have ghost-like qualities. They go through walls... Right, yeah, they float. there's ectoplasm. No legs. No feet. No feet. The thing about the Ghostbusters ghosts, especially, again, taking into account the initial concept for the film, is that they are more like aliens, space invaders, only instead of coming from another planet, they are coming from another dimension, essentially. And this is probably because the original plan for the movie was this dimension-hopping, time and space, almost science fiction concept. And we can still see that in the way that Gozer enters into the story. She's not being resurrected from the dead or anything like that. She is coming through a portal that clearly exists in some sort of separate dimension where she's been banished yeah so it's really not that much of a stretch to look at ghostbusters as a immigration or an undead invader movie i think that aliens i mean we have the term illegal alien right but aliens are often used as a metaphor for immigration And in science fiction, aliens are used to explore what it means to move from one place to another, to be welcome or unwelcome. And so 
we're going to look at how Ghostbusters can be read in that way. Right. The ways that it plays with place and invasion. I was inspired to go down this avenue by a paper called Immigrants as Aliens in the Ghostbusters Films, which sounds very straightforward, and it was anything but. I was just telling Annabelle I could go on a tirade about this, and we could talk about good academic writing versus bad academic writing. That would probably not have much currency for you, listener, because I don't recommend that you read this paper. The one example that I will give you is that there is a part in which Clark, the author, uses the word destiny to summarize the plot of Ghostbusters. Now, I want to be clear, Ghostbusters has no amount of the plot that is a chosen one narrative. There is no concept that they are predestined to do this. So she has just used this word from her vocabulary and then goes on to say, wow, destiny. Doesn't that make you think of Manifest Destiny? Manifest Destiny was Beyonce's band before she set out on her own solo career. And it's like, you chose that word. You really are just making this argument up whole cloth. Clark does make some interesting comments through a feminist lens and talks about the very penis-oriented choices that the creators of this movie made, but it is definitely an example of academia destroying writing. (laughs) It's just, it's, yeah, it's hard to read. But the title... Immigrants as Aliens in the Ghostbusters films is an interesting starting point, I think. It's a worthwhile question to look into. How does that bring this up? So that's what we're going to talk about. And to kind of set the tone, here was a quote that Clark used from Nerman Sebashili. A ghost is an uncanny stranger who has a presence that persists and cannot be effaced. This subject is therefore clearly related to borders and frontiers, to migrants and diasporic communities, to the colonized, to political refugees, and to consequent refiguring of notions of home and nation. That kind of says it, right? Right. Um, Ghosts occupy a borderless space. Liminal existence. Yeah, which is also the case for people who move from one country to another, one culture to another, they go beyond the borders or live across the borders. Sometimes, you know, moving between one reality and another. Occupying two spaces or a space in between the two. Indeed. And it's really not a surprise that immigration would be sort of a backstory or an not even like an undertone of a movie like Ghostbusters because the 1980s was a time in America when there was a lot of anxiety, discussion, and action around immigration. So, for example, the Immigration and Reform and Control Act of 1986 was one of Reagan's big moves as president and it had mixed results. Ghostbusters 
obviously came out a few years before this, but it's an example of how we were leading up to a point of serious action. Right. Just because this was not put into effect until two years after the movie, that doesn't mean that it wasn't on people's minds already, this anxiety of illegal immigration. Right. And you can read more about the Immigration Reform and Control Act. It was, from what I understand, Reagan's way of trying to show that he was getting serious about cracking down on immigration, but it also had the result of making it possible for a lot of immigrants to attain a legal status that they didn't have before. So it was a really mixed result. And um, there are a lot of articles online talking about how this particular act set the tone for the years to come when, when it comes to the conversation around immigration and policy. And, you know, a mixed result is probably the nicest thing we will ever say about Ronald Reagan. (laughs) That's right. So if we are imagining that these interdimensional entities that we're calling ghosts are an invader of some sort, if they are coming into New York City when they were not permitted to do so... Whether it's across the lines of life and death or from some other dimension. Then, what's the role of the Ghostbusters? This is a really interesting question that could get complicated. You could look at the Ghostbusters as like immigration officers paranormal ice paranormal ice Uh, not surprising i I would say for the the time or anything else we've discussed (laughs) around this movie (laughs) that being said they're also practitioners of vigilante justice because they are not necessarily supported by the powers that be right the epa is coming after them they are really a grassroots effort. Right, Um, so we're returning to the concept that we talked about in the last episode of official channels versus unofficial channels. So you're saying that they are an unofficial channel here. Small business, (laughs) yeah, unofficial channel, yeah. I don't know, what do you think? I think that if you are reading the ghosts as monster immigrants, then... I don't think there is much opportunity for a progressive role for the Ghostbusters to play here. I think that if you think about... (laughs) I think that if you think about... If you consider what the ghosts are doing, it's all pretty obvious the way that they would be monsterizing the immigrant and therefore with the Ghostbusters whole job being to detain them. Yeah. It's to detain and not even to send them back from whence they came. Right. It's to permanently detain them. And a couple things that come to mind, Slimer, who apparently at the time was referred to as the onion head ghost. Slimer is like a more modern moniker for that character. 
Okay. Or it postdates the film, I should say. I and probably because there's a line in the film about him being a slimer because he slimes things, right? Yeah, I think. I seem to remember that because like a little light went off in my head and went, oh, Slimer. Yeah. He comes into this ritzy hotel, right. the place of the upper echelon, and he makes a mess of it. And He's they call eating everybody's food. Right. And they call the Ghostbusters because they're in desperation to get right. rid of this disruptive. They don't have anyone else who will get rid of them. Yeah. Right. And it's also a shameful thing. Yeah. They, they don't want the guests to know that this is what's going down. So it really does demonize or, as you say, monsterize the immigrant. And there's also a moment where somebody is stuck in a taxi with a ghost cab driver. Mm-hmm. And you think about the stereotypical cab driver. Yeah. That is a person of color. Right. Or, and I was just making fun of clark for fixating upon this because it's really a split second in a montage but we do know that there is a ghost expelled from chinatown in a news headline that we see momentarily so while i would never go so far as to say that this was an intentional coding or that this is the only reading of these ghosts i think that if you're looking at it from this angle it is rather uncomfortable what the Ghostbusters are doing. You could say that both of those examples, the taxi, well, all three, the taxi, the fancy hotel, and Chinatown are attempts by the filmmakers to place this movie in New York City also. Yeah. But I totally am on board with, you know, through this lens, it's it's all immigrant figures. Right. And then when I think about the clash of cultures in Ghostbusters, this is not quite the same as the invasion plotline. It's worth returning to Gozer. Maybe I'm a little obsessed, but she is the climactic villain. Yeah, she's the boss. Hey, Queen. Girl, you have done it again. Constantly raising the bar for us all. And doing it flawlessly. And let's bring up one of the maybe most important works of critical theory of the 20th century, Orientalism by Edward Said. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with this? Oh, yes. So according to Said, Orientalism relies upon the worldview that the Orient exists in contradistinction to the West or the Occident. He calls it, quote, a Western style for dominating, restructuring, and having authority over the Orient. I think this is an especially interesting concept because oftentimes with Orientalism, there's a glorification or there's often sexualization. Yeah, there's and there's often aestheticization. Ex- exoticism. Yeah. Where there's this draw towards the quote-unquote Orient and also this aversion and and view of it as this uncharted territory where people are less developed, but also a great place for kind of like we talked about with the possession, a great place for white men to find themselves and experience personal development because of the 
strange, undefinable lack of borders, a lack of mm. it's structure. Yeah, it's almost an underworld. Right. It's this place that to the eyes of someone who was born or raised in Europe or the United States seems really undeveloped. And therefore, like a possessed woman, it's this place of mystery that teaches white men that there's more to life than just work and all of the structures of Western imperialism. Right. It's also one thing that I think is interesting is when I first heard the phrase Orientalism, it was often in a context similar to Japonisme, the art movement, where Western artists had been recently introduced to like ukiyo-e mm-hmm. prints. Mm-hmm. So then they were really mimicking a Japanese style. But when you read Said, there are two really interesting facets. One, that what a contemporary American thinks of as the Orient, even if we understand that that phrase is dated and offensive, is different from what the Orient was in the 19th century and earlier, Mm -hmm. like the location. Mm -hmm. And also that it is not only a kind of aestheticization, cultural appropriation of look how beautiful it is. What is it about the Asians that fascinates Caucasians? But it is also exactly the plundering of its resources and this idea of the dark double, that the Orient exists in relation to the Occident, where Occident is I and the Orient is the other. Right. The Occident is Dr. Jekyll and... Wait, am I getting these two mixed up? No. Okay, good. (laughs) The Occident is Dr. Jekyll and the Orient is Mr. Hyde. Well, and also think, depending on how you're defining it, even Eastern Europe can start becoming Oriental. So that means that the Occident is Jonathan Harker and the Orient is Dracula. Like, actually, literally... And I can't even get into this. I was going to say, like, how interesting that part of the world is when it comes to, like, trying to understand culture through the lens of Orientalism, because there have been so many different empires, and it's been under so many different religious empires. So, anyway... Vampires. 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 So, Said says, The Orient is not only adjacent to Europe. It is also the place of Europe's greatest and richest and oldest colonies, the source of its civilizations and languages, its cultural contestant, and one of its deepest and most recurring images of the other. In addition, the Orient has helped to define Europe, or the West, as its contrasting image, idea, personality, experience. But when he says the Orient, he specifically is referring to the Middle East and North Africa. 
though he does acknowledge that the ideology can extend to our contemporary American concept of the Orient as East Asia. And this is important because the Middle East is connected to Ghostbusters. Home of the Bible. Home of Babylon. Yes. (laughs) Home of Gozer. Yes. And one more quote from Saeed, just tying Orientalism to monster theory directly. He says, It also tries to show that European culture gained in strength and identity by setting itself off against the Orient as a sort of surrogate and even underground self. Underground. Like a corpse. Oh. So, here we get to the trope of the Mesopotamian monstrosity. Gozer is not the only Middle Eastern deity to appear in horror. The Exorcist opens on Father Marin's archaeological dig in Iraq, which is how Pazuzu gets brought to the U.S. H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth depicts a monstrous god named Dagon, who is derived from Canaanite mythology. Tiamat, discussed in the previous episode, features prominently in D&D. And TV Tropes codifies this as the Mesopotamian monstrosity. And I want to be clear, as a person with much interest in mythology, Gozer and Zul and Vince Clortho were all invented for Ghostbusters lore. These are not figures from any extant pantheon. Right, they're made up. So why would we choose ancients? <laughs> So why are we so fixated on ancient Middle Eastern pantheons and inventing characters from them or appropriating characters from them for our Gothic tales? Well, I think the most obvious answer to that is there is a connection between these ancient places and biblical times I mean, there's so many horror movies that I'm not going to list that involve some sort of Christian worldview in which a threatening being comes. There is an exorcism or some sort of plea to the Christian God and the monster goes away. And so I think those exist within a Christian sphere and and mindset and so it seems obvious that if you want to create a monster that makes sense to the general population of America which is what movies are made for <laughs> who movies are made for then you would go to the ancient middle east or near east yeah choosing ancient middle eastern pantheons as the enemy is less offensive to the general public, even non-Christians, because it's a, you know, supposedly dead religion. It's ancient. It seems as if it's okay to, to pull from that and be inspired by it because nobody is going to say, you know, how dare you use my Hindu God for an enemy or something like that. Right. It's also generally obscure and even occult, as in hidden, that the average person before the exorcist did not know 
of Pazuzu. Right. And so they might be ready to be afraid of something like that because of a Christian worldview. However, it feels very spooky and occult because, surprise, surprise, a lot of people don't read religious texts, at least not those parts. Um, And also anything that is ancient gets veiled in, in some sort of mystery and therefore becomes a little more threatening and also you can make up whatever lore you need to for your movie because people are not familiar with this thing right yeah it's very easy to just go general middle eastern ancient and people will believe it if it sounds right and be afraid of it and see it as an enemy and it's it's not really a a problem of accuracy. Right, which leads right to the next thought, which is that the reason you might tap into the Middle East and create Gozer could be derived from Western chauvinism and Orientalism, which is a worldview that considers these cultures just ripe for the taking. Yep. <laughs> it's a uh, colonizing deities, ancient deities. Yeah. Which is, it's also interesting because I I keep making the point that our most prominent contemporary religion in the United States comes from this source point. And yet there are still ideas about how we have come so far in terms of civilizing people and therefore these figures, these even religious ideas and practices especially pre-christian but even biblical like we say biblical times and and there's this connotation that it's this lawless place of mystery and loose spirits (laughs) and and so there's this idea that we have come so far of course it would be threatening if something ancient from this region came back because it's a very scary place that has no McDonald's and no Taco Bell, you know? (gasps) Not the Taco Baco. Well, that's also interesting because that brings in to Ghostbusters a dichotomy that I hadn't considered of contemporary versus ancient. There's conflict there. Yeah. Technology versus mysticism which of course brings us back to black magic white science well and i think orientalism is very much about seeing even contemporary middle eastern countries as ancient and uncivilized right even though those places have been through the same couple thousand years that the rest of the world has they're, they're associated with the mystical and with the untamed and with the primitive. Right. So I think that has something to do with Gozer. Yes. And then there is the preoccupation of Ghostbusters or my preoccupation of Ghost... What? <laughs> my preoccupation within Ghostbusters uh, about gender. We're talking about gender. And how the East is considered and 
structured as feminine in comparison to the West. Which is perfect if you want to try and conquer somebody, either literally or intellectually. Right. The West thinks of itself as masculine. Big guns, big industry, big money. So the East is feminine. Weak, delicate, poor, all but good at art, and uh, full of an inscrutable wisdom. The feminine mystique. Our mouth says no, but our eyes say yes. The West believes the East, deep down, wants to be dominated because a woman can't think for herself. What does this have to do with my question? You expect Oriental countries to submit to your guns and you expect Oriental women to be submissive to your men. And so then when your central villain is the archaic mother of Gozer and this mother goddess coming from ancient times who's now this destroyer, Grabbing from the grab bag of the East is a great way to do that. And also notably pre-biblical. Yeah. Because so many pre-biblical ancient religions were focused on the goddess or... Or at least had representations of goddesses. Right. G-O-D-D-E-S-S. That bitch is a goddess. Also, the appearance of Gozer can be read as just a monsterization of Eastern religion as feminine and monstrous, barbaric. Right. Destructive. Mm -hmm. And all of this really just boils down to spooky exoticism. It's, It's fun to chase down a monster from somewhere else. Yep. Which brings us back to, of course, the Orient as the dark double of the West. And if we want to talk about the appropriation of Eastern religion, big air quotes around that, we find that rather prominent in the occult sphere for quite a while. Yes, and the 1980s brought on a huge resurgence of, I guess, Easternized, that's not, I don't know if that's the way to put it, or, um, borrowing from Eastern philosophy and religion and morphing it into what we now know as new age. Yeah. As well as a resurgence of interest in spiritualism and the occult. Okay. Quick sidebar. The last time I was at Barnes and Noble, which was shopping for your birthday. Thank you. I was trying to find books on ghosts. Listener. I know that will be surprising. And Where do I want to go for that? Well, the New Age section. The hellscape that is the New Age and occult section of Barnes & Noble. The artist formerly known as New Age. It is is now called, called, called? if I recall correctly, self-transformation. Ooh. And, like, I understand we are still, of course, very appropriative and tapping into orientalism but like i understand at least looking into eastern religion for self-transformation getting in touch with your horoscope and your chakras and your tarot but i don't really understand why the books on alien conspiracy theories that have also always been in the new age section are self-transformation i just for one am 
just as embarrassed to be standing in the self-transformation section as I am to be standing in the new age section. So I don't really know what to say, but it's always been a hodgepodge of weirdness. They really should just call it like esoteric I, yeah, studies or... I wouldn't mind it being called a cult, but of course we're kind of living in a second satanic panic these days. Right, which is interesting because we're also living in a time where it's really cool to call yourself a witch. Or be an astrology girl. Right. Yeah. I just want to say also, I think it makes a lot of sense that satanic panic and new age resurgence is happening at the same time because I think new age in a lot of ways has been about you know, finding the light and kind of spiritual bypassing and, and trying to find the nice, friendly, warm and fuzzy aspects of the occult. So it's like, oh, cute. She's a witch girl. She does spells while she's baking bread. Homemaker. <laughs> witch girl to Tradwife Pipeline. Um, I'm sorry, I shouldn't go here. But, you know, it it makes sense that something that was trying to be sort of like alternative religion light would be having a moment at the same time as everyone is very afraid of the darker aspects. Like, you know, it's not cool right now to talk to demons, but it is cool to try astral projection. I mean, you talk to it. You talk. (laughs) I talk. Who do I talk to, Quest? I am cutting that. I mean, you talk to a demon for hours on end. Here we are. So we're kind of anticipating where we're about to go. But let's go back a couple generations, say four generations. Because Dan Aykroyd, the genius behind Ghostbusters, and I don't mean that sarcastically, is a fourth generation spiritualist. The first... Samuel Augustus Aykroyd, 1855-1933. Dan's great-grandfather. I like how you call him Dan. You know, he's your close personal friend. I've never heard him called Daniel Aykroyd. (laughs) And I couldn't really say Aykroyd's great-grandfather, because he's also Aykroyd. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. So... Samuel Augustus Aykroyd, quote, presided over his own home circle of spiritualists, and the sitters had their very own medium, Walter Ashurst, whom they believed acted as a conduit to many and varied afterworld personalities. Then, we have Maurice Aykroyd, 1891-1961, Dan's grandfather. And he was employed as a telephone engineer for Bell, and actually queried his colleagues about the possibility of constructing a high-vibration crystal radio as a mechanical method for contacting the spiritual world. As we always say, spiritualism follows technology. Especially telephones. Then Peter Aykroyd, born 1955, died 2021. Dan's father published... A History of Ghosts, The True Story of Seances, Mediums, Ghosts, and Ghostbusters in 2009, inspired by his father's, Maurice's, interest in the paranormal. I really wanted to get my hands on that book. I have not yet been able to do so. You didn't find it in the spiritual 
what is it called? Self-transformation. <laughs> I was going to say spiritual growth. Self-transformation section of Barnes & Noble. I did not. Darn. And then Dan. The man. 1952 to present. Has publicly identified as a spiritualist and has supported the American Society for Psychical Research. And, you know, made this movie. Made Ghostbusters. I... I'm going to have to come back in here later. No, I'm just going to look it up right now. I can't, that can't be right. Peter Ackroyd can't be born in 1955 <laughs> and then have a kid in 52. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm so glad I caught that. They're so magical. So Peter Ackroyd, Dan Ackroyd's father, was born in 1922. He died in 2020. So these Ackroyds. <laughs> How about them Ackroyds? <laughs> You want some cream for that? Ooh. How about some marshmallow? Ah! Ooh. Okay. So, <laughs> according to Anderson and Brown, critical attention to the Ghostbusters movie. What? Who am I? <laughs> so I read this article by Anderson and Brown where they brought up the criticism of the criticism of Ghostbusters saying that the critical attention towards the movie often presupposes a Christian framework, either arguing for the movie's participation in a Christian framework or rejection thereof. Which makes a lot of sense because as we've talked about, the 1980s was the time of Reagan. <laughs> and we haven't really talked about it yet, but it was a time of the revival of evangelical Christianity and the religious right. And so in some ways you kind of have to talk about Christianity. If you talk about Ghostbusters, because it came out in 1984 in the United States, but I think it's interesting to go beyond that, which is what these authors do. Right. They argue instead that Ghostbusters comes down on neither side of Christianity and instead, it adopts an approach similar to that of spiritualism. So spiritualism promoted an open-ended, hands-on approach to spectral matters, leaving interpretation open to participants. Quote, because spiritualism spread as a decentralized religion, it did not have any single teaching about what the spirits were, leaving it to observers to draw their own conclusions. Part of me wants to say this was just laziness on the part of the creators. and Or maybe just like, it's a blockbuster movie. Nobody really cares if the lore is intact. I don't think they knew that it was going to be... What it ended up being. What it was. Right. <laughs> um, as, as popular and have so many spinoffs. But I think there is something to be said that there is a freedom to the way that the ghosts are depicted that was probably inspired by Aykroyd's exposure to spiritualism. I think if he were a Christian, we probably would have seen a more concrete version of what a ghost is. And there may have been some more moralizing around interactions with ghosts. Right, or they probably would have at least been more anthropomorphic. Yeah. They often appear anthropomorphic, but they are lacking that internal 
human experience that you normally see in a ghost like Hamlet, like Elvira. Right. Or we would have had like biblically correct angels. Or demons. Or demons. It would have probably been more about, it might have been more like Buffy. Yeah. Or, oh, what's that movie? Um, it's a movie where, what's the <laughs> jagged little pill? Alanis Morissette is, ends up being God at the end. Or maybe it would have been more like uh, Dogma, the, the Kevin Smith movie where Alanis Morissette. Oh, spoiler! Alanis Morissette is God. Which is different from real life. What? Where Alanis Morissette isn't God. Oh. <laughs> She's not my God. I'll tell you what. It's like 10,000 And speaking of whether or not we worship Alanis Morissette, Anderson and Brown say regarding the Christian or spiritualist framework of Ghostbusters. By moving our scholarly framework away from belief systems and into the affective realm of emotion, we are suggesting that the most accurate rendition of spiritualism is a phenomenological one. Phenomenology is, from Wikipedia, the study of structures of consciousness as experienced from the first-person point of view. And in physics, phenomenology is the use of theoretical models to make predictions that can be tested through experiments, both of which I feel like are relevant to the Ghostbusters. It is about going into the field and seeing, where is a ghost? What is a ghost? Can I catch the ghost? And not so much about... Where did the ghost come from? Is the ghost my dear Aunt Jane? What right. does she want? Right. Yeah, they don't seem very interested in that. It's really more, like you said, where can I find it? How can I catch it? And the thing that I thought was just so interesting about this paper by Anderson and Brown, aside from bringing into the question Aykroyd's personal family history as creator of the film, is that they posit a reading of the Ghostbusters where each individual Ghostbuster represents a different method of engaging with spectral phenomena. And that's interesting for this consideration of spiritualism, and also it really helped me understand what was going on with my beloved Vankman. Agreed. Yeah, we we discussed earlier that Vankman is confusing when it comes to his approach to ghosts because we are introduced to him as sort of a liar and an intentional botcher shitster <laughs> of, of research he botcher is not a word but he botches his research on purpose he see, doesn't seem to care about the research but also gets upset when he gets kicked out is skeptical but not interested when he sees a ghost so i think this is very helpful so looking at the ways that spiritualists comported themselves in the 19th and early 20th centuries anderson and brown come to the following conclusions they say that egon represents the scientific approach 
He's mostly unfazed by the bizarre happenings around him. He is instead fixated on data collection, and he invents the instruments for interfacing with the ghosts and eventually catching them. Winston, whom we've not really discussed much yet. Yeah. He is the fourth, the black Ghostbuster. He is hired when the Ghostbusters start having more financial success and need more people. And he is not particularly invested in the idea of busting ghosts. He just needs a job. He seems to be the most sane of anybody in this movie. Yeah. Including, although I think he he takes, as we're about to talk about, a Christian worldview. (laughs) He seems really, like, sure of his beliefs, grounded in his worldview. When he is threatened with the apocalypse, he's kind of like, yeah, judgment day. (laughs) And so there's something kind of comforting and reassuring about Winston. Yes, though I would also posit that he could also represent a certain stereotype of like, I don't know what the crazy white people are up to. Yeah, and also could be prone to misreading a situation because he is so fixed in his Christian worldview. Right. So he approaches spiritualism from a Christian angle, which is a thing that some people did in, Mm -hmm. I don't know what to call it, the golden age of spiritualism, I kind of want to call it. The early 20th century. But his work as a Ghostbuster doesn't conflict with his Christianity, and his knowledge of scripture is valuable to the Ghostbusters as the film approaches its climax, as you were just saying. Right. Hey, Ray, do you remember something in the Bible about the last days when the dead would rise from the grave? I remember Revelation 7:12. And I looked as he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth, and the moon became as blood, and the seas boiled, and the skies fell. Judgment Day. Judgment Day. Every ancient religion has its own myth about the end of the world. Myth? Ray, has it ever occurred to you And maybe the reason we've been so busy lately is because the dead have been rising from the grave. I think this is a pretty common way of dealing with the idea of an afterlife and of ghosts where the paranormal easily fits in to a Christian perspective. It just is seen through that lens. Right. He's not super at odds with anything that's happening. He's just kind of ready to take it as it comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we have Vankman, who is an opportunist. Quote, Peter exploits his role as a paranormal investigator to fulfill whatever his desire might be in the moment. And this actually sounds like so many of the people we talked about in the, as you said, golden age of spiritualism. The spirit photographers, the performance artists, they were what I would consider opportunists. I would also think of the Fox sisters who were opportunists in their own way, and they profited off of it until it was no longer profitable and their social standing sunk. And then they were like, oh, it was fake the whole time. Yep. And there were pieced out. And there were other people, I can't recall who, who had more of a back and forth even, where they were Mm -hmm. like, yes, ghosts are real. No, I was just faking it. But now they're real. 
Yeah. P.T. Barnum, I think, was one of those people. So in a certain way, Venkman is, I'm sorry to say, the perfect lead in a movie with a spiritualist worldview. Yeah, and that's actually where I take issue with Anderson and Brown's research because they really want Ray to be the protagonist and they really rest, like they attribute a lot to him that I feel like we do not get explicitly. I I think he is the protagonist. Okay. I hate him. Wait, Venkman. Oh, wait, who's Ray? Ackroyd. Who's Ray? Exactly. (laughs) We'll get there in a second. Um, (laughs) Wrapping up are just the worst guy. What are the desires that he has from moment to moment? Their female attention, their intellectual superiority, their financial gain. Anderson and Brown even say, to what extent he even believes in ghosts remains a matter of debate. And it changes from scene to scene. It does. And in a real person, I don't care. Like in a real person, sure, you're allowed to change your mind with what's happening around you. But for a character in a movie, I gotta know. Well, it's whatever is practical at the moment. Yeah. Right? If it's practical for him to see the ghost and capture it, he believes. If he feels like he wants to be better than someone else who's so superstitious and hysterical, then he's a skeptic. Right. So, Ray is Dan Aykroyd's character. Oh. And we don't really get a lot out of him. Nope. I, I would say that Egon is easy to read because he is such a stereotypical nerd. And he even gets a very, very, very minor plot line where the secretary is flirting with him and has a crush on him. Oh, that's right. And he kind of isn't exactly interested. And so, like, there's a certain amount of characterization there. And Winston shows up really late in the movie, but he gets to have a passionate monologue right before the scene in the mayor's office, and I think also in the mayor's office. He has a personality. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Dan Aykroyd's character sometimes serves as the butt of a fat joke, which he's not that fat in this movie. No, it was a dark time. And he just doesn't really fit any easily legible niche. It's like we needed three and later four Ghostbusters. And so Dan wrote himself into the movie as the least noticeable character. And that's maybe what makes it easy for these writers to give the reading that they do of Ray, the spiritualist. Okay. (laughs) So they say Ray's distinctive approach to paranormal phenomena is simply to revel in them as unique and marvelous experiences. They say that he has a focus on wonder. They talk about the fact that in our scene in the library, He is carrying camera equipment to immortalize the encounter instead of just measuring it. And that throughout the movie, he remains enthusiastic and effusive about ghosts, which I do think are valid 
points to make. It's just hard to really bring them to mind with everything else that's happening. He is a character that really does fly under the radar for a lot of it. So he's the guy that goes, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) And they also find it notable that his approach does not conflict with those of the other Ghostbusters. He and Egon are kind of a pair at the beginning of the movie. And he never argues against Vankman, particularly. I guess there is a type of protagonist that acts as a proxy for the audience or the reader. And I think Ray is the closest Ghostbuster to being that proxy for the audience. Just kind of amused, interested in it, but doesn't have any strong beliefs either way. And so he's, he's going, whoa, so we go, whoa, kind of like a laugh track. So I can see that, but I forgot who he was when we started talking about him other than going, oh, that's Dan Aykroyd. So I think it's a little bit far-fetched to say that he's the main character. Yes, and they don't say he's the main character. They just say he's the one who represents spiritualism. But I think they I like see. give him a lot more credit as a character than you really get from him watching it. Because they're writing about spiritualism and they're exactly. like, this is the guy. I feel also that like for us, it's kind of wish fulfillment to try and structure him as the protagonist because he's the least bothersome. I'm right. not the least because I like the other two. It's just Venkman. Well, I could imagine that if we were to have a book a Ghostbusters book, that Ray would be the narrator. Yes. And his actions are what lead to Gozer's marshmallowification. Idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go on. (laughs) So there's one more quote from Anderson and Brown about this, which really is kind of where they rest a lot of their case. Quote, When Winston asks Ray if he believes in God, his response is revealing. Never met him, he says, meaning that he has had no direct experience of God, which is his ultimate criterion of truth and value. Which obviously is a joke in the script to some degree, Mm -hmm. but is pretty fascinating, the construction of that line to begin with. And I do like this argument, even if I don't think it's an intent on the filmmaker's part. Yeah. So we've gotten into this to some degree, but why is spiritualism rearing its head in the good old 1980s? We are not going to read this quote. We have a very long quote, so we're just going to talk about it. So one thing that we talked about in our episode on spiritualism was the immense amount of social change going on in the 19th and 20th centuries Mm -hmm. and how this kind of upheaval and restructuring of our understanding of the world would lead people down this path. For example, the authors cite the discovery of deep space and time, the realization of the immensity of the physical universe in astronomy or the age of earth in geology, electromagnetism, 
as an invisible force that affects the natural world. Darwin's theory of evolution, which undermines scripture. And then all of these scientific forces are going to challenge the status of Christianity at this period. So people are going to struggle to maintain that in the face of these discoveries or to restructure their religious beliefs in the wake of these scientific advancements. And so the 1980s saw similar upheaval in what we know and understand. Right. In the 80s, we have what Anderson and Brown call a similar climate of cultural vertigo, which I feel like has never ended since. (laughs) It was just uh, the initial... Cultural vertigo. We're in the middle of the Cold War. We have fears of nuclear annihilation as well as fear of communism. Global warming became well known. It was kind of brewing in the earlier part of the 21st century. (laughs) Like, (laughs) what century are we in? And really became well known in, in science and politics in the 1980s. We have the dominance of conservatism and free market economics. We have changes in technology that are changing the way that the economy works and the way that people work. Quest mentioned the Cold War and nuclear anxiety, which I think goes along with increasing advancements and anxieties around technology. Right. There was, and I'll just read this one verbatim because I love a list, major civil discontent and violence occurred in Angola, Ethiopia, the Philippines, Uganda, Laos, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Lebanon, Sudan, the DRC, the CAR, and and Azerbaijan. So the world was at war. Yeah. And then... The progressive social movements of the 1960s continued to wreak havoc on established hierarchies, such as anti-racism, women's liberation, queer liberation, which of course was escalating because of the AIDS crisis. And the satanic panic arose. And also, as I mentioned earlier, the rise of evangelical Christianity And I had intended to do more research on this for this episode, but for one, we already have a lot of research that we are covering, but also people who know this better than I do could probably do a better job of talking about it. So instead, we're going to give you a few resources if you want to learn more about the rise of Christianity in 1980s America. So the first resource I want to share is the podcast episode from the experiment called How the Evangelical Machine Got Made. And this is rooted more in contemporary evangelical Christianity and Trumpism, but goes back into the history of kind of how we got here. And then I have not listened to this one, but I want to, and it looks very interesting. There is a whole series called The Orange Wave, A History of the Religious Right Since 1960. And this podcast uses Orange County, California, home of Disneyland. We're going to Disneyland! 
and very notoriously conservative area outside of Los Angeles. I was going to call it a town, but we don't really have, we don't have towns in Southern California. We just have sprawl. <laughs> um, so the podcast uses Orange County as a, I guess, example and, and conduit to talk about how the religious right was formed and grew since 1960. And if you're interested in the Satanic Panic, I would recommend the season of CBC's podcast Uncover titled Satanic Panic, which is about the accusations of satanic ritual abuse in Martinsville, Saskatchewan. That is one of my favorite podcasts of all time, and I am now permanently obsessed with the Satanic Panic because not only of the just bizarre social ramifications and the way that it worked among people, but also the thing that I've always been obsessed with was its effect on culture. How in the 90s and early 2000s, there was censorship of things like Pokemon or if you were a kid in the 90s and 2000s, you probably had friends who told you, oh, I'm not allowed to read Harry Potter because my parents say it's of the devil. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a very occult-friendly household. Mm -hmm. And the way that that has been so demonized just fascinates me and really relates to what we're talking about with evangelism and ghost busters and of course when you have the dominant culture fear-mongering and focusing upon certain things like occultism you then have people capitalizing on that and responding to it both in the counterculture and in the dominant culture as well with ghostbusters and various horror movies i guess right i'm always so vague in general because i am still learning my horror i'm i'm not i don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of the genre and i'd like to one day but in any case the satanic panic was sparked by a rise in pop culture depictions of the occult like heavy metal dungeons and dragons and i think it also sparked even more depictions of the occult i would i would argue it was like the fear created more media Right. The difference being, some things gave you a playground in which you can dabble with occult forces, D&D being a great example. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're battling the demons and sometimes you're summoning them. Right. Whereas in other media at the time, it is all about pushing those forces of evil down. Or like a cautionary tale. Right. So this interest and fear of the occult appears in Ghostbusters, specifically represented by Evo Shandor, a character mentioned only in dialogue. Something terrible is about to enter our world, and this building is obviously the door. The architect's name was Evo Shandor. I found it in Tobin's spirit guide. He was also a doctor, performed a lot of unnecessary surgery, and then in 1920, he started a secret society. Let me guess. Gozer worshippers. Right. After the First World War, Shandor decided that society was too sick to survive. 
And he wasn't alone. He had close to a no. thousand followers when he died. They conducted rituals up on the roof. Bizarre rituals intended to bring about the end of the world. And now it looks like it may actually happen. And Shandor represents an occultism of the early 20th century, with the fruits of his labor resulting in the emergence of Gozer in 1984. And so, kind of like Gozer herself, there's no direct correlation between Shandor and a certain occultist of the 1910s or 20s, but I argue that his work is reminiscent of several historic figures and occultists. So I just want to share a couple of people and instances that I think are reminiscent of Shandor. So first, Aleister Crowley, the occultist who who was proud of his title as the wickedest man in the world, <laughs> although... <laughs> I don't know that, that. And your little dog, too. Yeah. <laughs> I think he was really just trying to be metal. Like, he was problematic, but anyway. He was the Ozzy Osbourne of his time. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Crowley famously worked with deities based on... <laughs> oh, that's a really good typo. <laughs> DSDs. <laughs> I may have said while you were saying something else, what is that word? And I hope the mic didn't pick it up. That's okay. Crowley famously worked with deities based on ancient Egyptian and maybe Babylonian, Sumerian pantheons, as well as a lot of imagery in his writing from the Book of Revelation. And he was the son of a preacher, minister, and so... Like many people of his time, he learned to read from the Bible, and a lot of his early education was biblical. And so when he became an occultist, he actually went to study Buddhism and other Eastern religions, right? There you go. Here we go. In India, he started to sort of turn these biblical texts on their head and rewrite his own versions to create his own rituals, but you can still very much see the influence of the ancient religious imagery. And related to Crowley is the 1946 ritual conducted by Jack Parsons, who was a student of Crowley, also one of the founders of JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratories, and inventor of rocket fuel, along with L. Ron Hubbard, Boo, hiss. <laughs> In- inventor, um, creator. The mind. The mind behind, behind Scientology. So Parsons and Hubbard performed a series of magical rituals in 1946 with the aim of incarnating the Thelemic goddess Babylon in a human being. And if you want to talk psychosexual, oh, look yeah. up those rituals. We got marshmallow men exploding galore. There's a lot of that. And the reason I bring up Jack Parsons, because you might be thinking, like, how does this have anything to do with Shandor, who, you know, was an architect? I think of Parsons and Hubbard as architects of contemporary society, particularly Parsons. I mean, Hubbard definitely was a man. (laughs) He created uh, a lot of ideas that 
have influenced business and cults. Tom Cruise. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, hey. But Parsons, in developing Rocket Fuel and helping to start JPL, was very much a part of the foundations of the age that we live in now. You know, we live in a post-rocket age. And if you believe in the moon landing, we've even gone to the moon. <laughs> we live in a post-moon landing age. And so I think Parsons was part of the architecture of contemporary America and was an occultist. Ghosts are people too does not endorse <laughs> moon landing conspiracy theories. It was a joke. There are also some architects who I think are analogous to Evo Shandor. To me, I think the name, at least, Shandor, seems to be a parody of Rudolf Steiner, who was born in 1861, died in 1925. Steiner is not famous for being an architect, but he was an architect, amongst many other things. He was an Austrian occultist, social reformer, architect, esotericist, and self-proclaimed clairvoyant. He's famous for his methods of schooling and biodynamic farming, but he also invented a gothenium from around 1913 to 1919, which is a mix of a temple, dance hall, conference center, and it's this kind of art deco looking dome structure. I think there's only one that still stands. And as someone who was working with occult ideas and created his own building and has a silent shh in his name, <laughs> silent, or no, that's not, <laughs> and whose name is pronounced Steiner, but spelled S-T-E-I-N-E-R, and Ivo's name, Eva, <laughs> losing it. And uh, the character Evo Shandor is pronounced Shandor, but is spelled S-A-N-D-O-R. I think... <laughs> it, <laughs> I just want to say, because it did come this up in my This is dumb research. enough for Dan Aykroyd to take inspiration from it. That's all I'm trying to say here. I mean, Steiner is obviously a German last name. It means stoneworker or something like that. Uh, Ivo Shandor is supposed to be like Eastern, Eastern European. Steiner? Shandor? This building is beautiful. I was puzzling over how to describe it. Would you put it past Dan Aykroyd to have heard of Rudolf Steiner and be like, oh, we're going to make it Shandor? No. Well, I wouldn't put it past him to be inspired by a real figure like that. And I definitely do think that Crowley was the kind of figure that Shandor is probably based on as well. Right. But I think that Steiner had a more successful go of it when it comes to his ability to do things like build architectural structures and create lasting social movements while Crowley was so much of an outcast that the idea of him creating a skyscraper in New York City doesn't 
seem anywhere within the realm of possibility. Of course. Which is why I think that it's kind of a... Composite. Com- yeah, composite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's also just, I think, fascinating the way that architecture ends up being, though barely touched upon, a part of the puzzle that leads us to the climax. That the building that Dana was living in the whole time is what leads to the resurrection of Gozer. And this idea of, like, it's almost an inversion of the trope of the Indian burial ground. Mm -hmm. It's like this building was constructed with the purpose of bringing forth an occult entity. It was designed, and it makes me think of things like sacred geometry and ley lines. Mm -hmm. And those are, of course, their own occult concepts. Right. I feel like I've, I've never spoken to a New Yorker about this, but I feel like in some ways this is very much a part of the culture of Los Angeles where there's an assumption that there are buildings that were created by strange people who came out to LA to live their best lives. So I'm thinking of the Babylon set on Hollywood and Highland, the shopping center. It was originally built for the 1916 film Intolerance. And I have heard many people talk about how this is some sort of link to actual parts of the ancient Middle East where th- there's like something to do with the longitude and latitude and mm. it links to Israel or, of you course. know, and, and so because we have a, a really thriving new age and occult culture in Los Angeles, as well as a city built on real estate and architecture, I feel like it's very much a part of, our lore and our understanding that they're going to be buildings like this. Right. And I would even, it's a bit of a far stretch, but we're in the same state as the Winchester mystery house. Yeah. And I mean, this Jack Parsons JPL is in Pasadena. Mm. And Mm -hmm. so Scientology and rocket fuel were both invented by a couple of people who knew each other in this general area. And so I guess my point is, I don't know where Aykroyd was living when he wrote the Ghostbusters script, but I'm assuming a lot of it was produced and shot in Los Angeles. So in some ways, I feel like there is a L.A. occult and New Age lens being put over New York City. Mm -hmm. That, That was just a little tangent that my brain went on when I was doing this research. So in the book Ghostbusters Afterlife, the art and making of the movie, the filmmakers claim that Evo Shandor was initially envisioned as a cross between the eccentric inventor and engineer Nikola Tesla and the influential American architect Louis Sullivan. And people attribute 
Sullivan's spiritual philosophy to transcendentalism and transcendentalist influences, while Tesla called himself non-religious. Although Robert Anton Wilson, one of my faves, once called Tesla a secular shaman because Tesla did have, maybe through a scientific lens, some spiritual ideas that he he wouldn't use the language of spirituality, but he definitely can be seen, as Wilson said, as a secular shaman. He had a spiritual underpinning. Well, and then Sullivan is considered the father of the skyscraper. Mm -hmm. He's also called Father Modernism. And I think that that's rather fascinating in itself when you know new york city is the land of the skyscraper and a skyscraper is our kind of haunted house in this movie yeah so go back to like the inventor thereof right so it's like what if sullivan was inspired by spiritualists or by crowley rather than by thoreau what would we have we would have the skyscraper of ghostbusters conjuring Gozer to bring on the apocalypse. And I I think we kind of touched on this already, but the idea that people responsible for building the foundations of modern culture, whether it's rocket fuel or high-rise buildings, were also making attempts to contact ancient deities or the dead or to have a general impact on spiritual culture is really not far from the truth. And I'm sure if you talk to architects or read architectural literature, you will find a lot of discussion about the impact of a building and the impact of space on both the psyche and the spirit. Right. The one thing I want to tread lightly around is we are talking about the people who have constructed our society and people who are major players behind modernism And when you talk about that in relation with the occult, you do start to encroach a little bit on New World Order territory, Uh which, of course, leads back to anti-Semitism. And so if you take these discussions or this research elsewhere, be careful where you go. Just be on high alert for outrageous conspiracy theories and do not dabble with scientologists please if it goes back to the jews turn back because you probably found something uh, unreliable and as we talk about the architecture of our modern society what better place to start drawing this episode to a close than with an anti-capitalist critique So I realize that I am starting to become a cranky, old, anti-capitalist academic because I watched the Barbie movie and Ghostbusters in the same week, and I was just cranky. (laughs) And all I could think about was capitalism. But in all honesty, I've been a little bit paranoid about my anti-capitalist analyses of films, especially after reading a particular comment 
on the film analysis channel Broy de Chanel on YouTube. <laughs> really funny name, really good analyses. They said that they were going to be reviewing the Barbie movie soon. And they got a comment saying, like, this had better not be just, wow, this sucks because capitalism. And I was thinking, well, why not? Like, maybe it did suck because capitalism. And I'm not going to get into that now, but I, I did have some feelings and thoughts about the Mattel of it all. And I think it's important to talk about capitalism, even if we are going to the movies and knowingly engaging with blockbuster hits. So. Yes. And the difference there is that where discussions of Barbie, which I have yet to see and have some mixed feelings on the discourse are typically criticisms of capitalism from without, as in the way that those structures affect why the movie was made. Yeah. Whereas what we're about to talk about is a criticism of capitalism within. We're not going to talk about the marketing and the merchandising of Ghostbusters because that comes after the fact and could be its own multi-episode about ghost merch. Right. And this we've is... already talked about demographics and why the humor is the way it is and things like that. So we've touched upon that already. And about the ensuing sequels, comic books, cartoons, the video game, congratulation. Right. <laughs> this is talking about what it means to incorporate the paranormal into your business practices, like starting the Ghostbusters as a business. When we knew we were going to do a Ghostbusters episode, I remembered this Saturday morning breakfast cereal strip from 2015 titled The Most American Movie. And we're just going to read you the dialogue. The imagery of those comics is not particularly important. All you need to know is that there is an ostensibly male character talking to an ostensibly female character. And he says, what's the most American movie ever made? That's easy. Ghostbusters. People discover that there's life beyond the pale of death, so they start a small business and cash in. Most of that film is about buying an office, getting better clientele, fighting government, regulators, and increasing your workforce. This is a film where the afterlife is proven to be real, yet there's an entire scene devoted to salary negotiation. I guess you never realize how weird a culture is while you're inside it. What's the most American book? Moby Dick. Violent man has a confusing revenge fantasy against a cheap source of oil. Holy crap. <laughs> now, I read this comic again after watching Ghostbusters, and I just couldn't help but question, is the comic right? Does this synopsis of the film from the characters stand up to the movie that you experienced in a recent viewing? Yes. Thank you for listening to... <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think so. And at least for me, this was one of my initial responses. I didn't necessarily at first think this is so American, although maybe I should have. I thought this is so 1980s. But my understanding of the 1980s is very much 
American. It was people with more money than ever before, people in the workforce, engaging in capitalism. If you didn't have money, that was really shameful and you were an outcast. And if you did have money, you were supposed to flaunt it like nobody's business. I disagree, not with that, but with the synopsis presented in the comic. Tell me more. I mostly disagree with the idea that, quote, people discover that there's life beyond the pale of death, so they start a small business and cash in. Because really what happens in the movie is they are already paranormal researchers then they get fired from their university position and they start a small business because their previous line of employment is no longer viable. Right. People are forcibly squeezed out of establishment research and therefore decide it's their opportunity to start their own business. And they're essentially doing what they were doing before independently albeit we don't see them catching any ghosts but it does seem like the library encounter is their first encounter and then they're fired so i would argue that they don't have any opportunity to have yet done what they now do as the ghostbusters but what i've been saying this whole half of the episode especially this is not really about life beyond the pale of death these ghosts are not recognizably the incarnations of the deceased so you're not seeing your deceased relative come back and give you this hope that oh there's life after death life after death is no pun intended immaterial in ghostbusters so i would say a more accurate reading of ghostbusters is that people discover they can't rely on establishment modes of employment and start their own small business to cash in. And that does stand up. Obviously, we've talked about the problem with the government regulation aspect and how that's rather poorly structured in the film and, and the conflict with them is pretty arbitrary and unrelated to what they're actually trying to do. But I I would also edit rather than this is a film where the afterlife is proven to be real. It's more like this is a film where extra dimensional monsters are proven or seem to be real. And there's an entire scene devoted to salary negotiation. And I think that this is just part of why we had to approach Ghostbusters this way is because if the ghosts were recognizably the spirits of the deceased, and maybe we'll see this when we talk about the 2016 reboot, then we could have relied on methods of reading the narrative that we're so much more used to when we've been talking about other ghost media. Whereas here we've really had to tackle the problem of what are these ghosts? And... I think that that's a big part of my problem because we're not going to talk about this today, but there are professional ghost hunters and ghost hunting shows. Mm -hmm. And those are profiting off of the alleged 
existence of the afterlife and these people's alleged power to contact that. Hey there, demons. It's me, your boy. That's not even an issue. No, not even remotely connected. Yeah. In fact, I created as a research tool for this show something called Interview with the Ghost that is a series of questions based on Jeffrey Jerome Cohen's monster theory and just general questions that we like to ask on this show that helps guide us through understanding the way ghosts function. And we would have been stuck on, like, what is the ghost for this entire episode if we had tried to use that sheet. So I think it goes without saying. I think it ghosts without saying. Oh, (laughs) I think it ghosts without saying that money and business is an important part of the plot of Ghostbusters. Yes. And so it seems like as an opportunist, Venkman, (laughs) who I miss, uh, there's a typo here. This is Vekman. And at the bottom, too. I think I thought his name was Vekman. I really hate it. That's not. There's like no C, right? Yeah. Okay. I hated him enough to misspell his name multiple times. So, Vankman, as an opportunist, is looking for ways to further his career, to make money, to meet and impress, and. Babes. Right. <laughs> and get the babes. And so, when. He and his fellow researchers lose their funding at the university. The dean says something to Bankman that I think really characterizes him. We believe that the purpose of science is to serve mankind. You, however, seem to regard science as some kind of dodge or hustle. Your theories are the worst kind of popular tripe, your methods are sloppy, and your conclusions are highly questionable. You are a poor scientist, Dr. Venkman. He's trying to insult Venkman, but he's really just saying something that's true about him, and I don't think Venkman is particularly offended. He's just pissed off that he lost his job. And it's even kind of the premise for the whole movie. The fact that that is not ever challenged, that, like... No, that's not true. I don't think of science as a dodge or a hustle. But hey, put a second mortgage out on your house, Ray, because we got to start a business. Yeah, so he clearly does regard science as a hustle. And that's how Ghostbusters, the small business, exists or comes to exist. And we've touched on this several times now, but Venkman doesn't seem like he's actually interested in the validity of his experiments, right? He's doing them willy-nilly. He's intentionally messing them up just to amuse himself and get what he wants. Ghostbusting is a means to an end for Venkman. Money, power, and women. His colleagues might have a more complex relationship with the Endeavor. As we were saying, Ray is always just fascinated he's always going whoa and then egon is still seems to be invested in the scientific side of things as we go further 
Right. So Venkman's colleagues are curious. They want to see technology advance. They want to learn about the ghosts. But this really takes a back seat when the business starts and becomes a vehicle for commerce. They're really just trying to run a business, which makes sense because it's very, very hard to start a small business. And that should become your main focus if you're doing that. But it's really central to the plot of the movie that that's what they are trying to do. Well, I was just thinking right now, and this is, I promise, the first time it's occurred to me, the inciting incident for the plot with Dana, with like Dana getting involved with them, mm-hmm. is their commercial. Yeah. They make a commercial for their business and she sees it. So then when something weird happens or regarding the thing, weird thing that's already happened, I can't remember the order of events exactly, she's then able to call them. That's right. Are you troubled by strange noises in the middle of the night? Do you experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? Have you or any of your family ever seen a spook, specter, or ghost? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Ghostbusters! Our courteous and efficient staff is on call 24 hours a day to serve all your supernatural elimination needs. We're ready to believe you! Yeah, her connection with the other characters is purely commercial until Venkman starts using the business as a way to try and get in her pants. Yeah. And I think that the, again, the small business aspect is really reinforced when you think about the stock phrase that immediately comes to mind when Ghostbusters comes to your... When Ghostbusters... If I say Ghostbusters, you say... Who you gonna call? Yeah. It's really kind of meta because the commercial success of Ghostbusters was the commercial of Ghostbusters. It's just all about. It's all about. The money, the money, money. <laughs> and I just have a little side note here. If we're going to talk about money and property and capitalism, I found it very funny that the Ghostbusters destroy so much property every time they try to capture a ghost which is like classic superhero logic you it know? is it's it's very also just general big movie yeah movie style movie logic which also just word association game but like at the ending you got the giant stay puffed marshmallow man who is so kaiju-esque and mm-hmm. kaiju movies are also about, like, the lesser of two evils smashing on cars regardless. Yeah, and uh, while we're talking about Stay Puft, like, what is the last major boss but this... Mascot. This mascot, this mascot of advertising for a semi-food product. <laughs> Marshmallows are food, don't come at me. Um, but it, it's like this industrial food that from probably ingrained in their minds from childhood right ray tries to make his mind a blank and this is what stays there it's also funny because when dana is putting her groceries down earlier stay puffed marshmallows are in the bag i think this might come from bowling for columbine or a movie like that or soup maybe supersize me it was one of those really outrageous early 2000s documentaries but there's a scene where kids are being asked to identify logos and then they're asked to identify jesus christ 
and they know every single logo and fast food logo, but they can't identify Jesus. Grandis. It's crutch. Jesus crutch. And I feel like that has been used as fodder to prove that we are a capitalist society that lacks moral backbone. And I feel like the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man is like another emblem of that. And just just another another note. We've talked about how the EPA plotline is pretty weak. Yes. But it is notable and kind of funny that the thing that ultimately the Ghostbusters get in trouble for is using too much electricity. They're like overusing their resources and the EPA becomes the enemy. And I just made a note to self that says this screams 80s to me and signals that this movie is a movie of the dominant culture, not a countercultural response. Right. Because it's really from a time where business rules. I mean, I we could argue that we're still in that time, although maybe not always in the cultural conversation. We like to pretend that we're not. But I think we are still in a time where the environmental regulators are the enemy of the corporations. Ghostbusters is not a corporation. They are a small business. But there's still that tension there. Like, we want to make money. We want to do what we're doing. And how dare you get in the way and suggest that we are overusing the grid? I'm going to say that there's something wrong with your dick for even suggesting it. It also reminds me of the conversation that comes up every time the idea comes up of any sort of restriction on businesses. Yeah. Is immediately you have all of these people saying, but what about the mom and pops? What about the small business owners? Mm-hmm. Even when it does not actually affect them. And those people are still, of course, exploiting workers. Right. Yeah. So if anything, the fact that Ghostbusters is not a multinational corporation, but is a small business, makes it easier for us to sympathize with them, even when the average New Yorker would benefit more from the environment being protected than they would from the Ghostbusters bottom line not being protected. Yep. An interesting article just came out about how GT Kombucha was exploiting their workers and putting out advertising about how that has to be like a a spiritual happy place for the kombucha to grow. It's in the Los Angeles Times. Um, So if you want to look at the intersection between new age and small business capitalism, that might be an interesting place to start. Although I'm sure there's so much out there about that that we have not read kombucha yeah (laughs) also the crystal industry is pretty darn questionable oh my god so speaking of industry and the horrors thereof i just found interesting to consider the idea that a considerable amount of horror media relies on a macguffin tied to the usually male protagonist's profession or to a money-making opportunity, which results in the protagonist coming face-to-face with the horror object. Non-exhaustive list, but in Dracula, Harker is sent to Dracula on a business trip. 
In The Shining, Jack Torrance takes a job at The Overlook and wants to complete his novel. We got two business ventures. Mm -hmm. Misery, Annie kidnaps Paul because he's a famous author. The Woman in Black, Kips is sent to Crith and Gifford on a business trip. Child's Play, Karen's demanding role as a working single mom causes her to buy the secondhand good guy doll that's possessed by Charles Lee Ray. The Lighthouse, Winslow is set to work at The Lighthouse. And then there are the more upfront anti-capitalist horror films like Poltergeist, criticizing housing development, Velvet Buzzsaw, criticizing the art market, Alien, which is criticizing arms dealing, maybe? I I get kind of confused on what the corporation and Alien is even really trying to do. Jaws and tourism, Jurassic Park, and amusement (laughs) (laughs) amusement porks. Jurassic Park and theme parks, which is, of course, kind of related to tourism. Not to mention that there's all of the examples where the protagonist encounters the horror object for scholarly purposes, like The Haunting of Hill House, like The Exorcist, the beginning thereof. But it's also worth noting that the Ghostbusters begin the story in the Academy, and the Academy can operate as an appendage of capitalist structures. They're, they're clearly being paid yeah it's their career yeah and so when they are launched out of the academy they immediately realize that they need a new job yeah though it's a little bit mixed in ghostbusters i would argue because they are fired since their research is not considered profitable so they're probably not making money in the first place yeah although somehow they're able to afford apartments in new york but it was the 1980s anyway (laughs) Where the science of parapsychology tries to pin down supernatural phenomena through naming, defining, cataloging, measuring, recording, etc. The business of ghost hunting performs these same tasks with a profit incentive. So they're doing exactly what they were doing when they were at the university, but now they are doing it for the money. More or less. Right. There's a difference between, and this is not the scientific part as much, but there's a difference between the Fox sisters cracking their toe knuckles to entertain their friends and guests at their house, and the Fox sisters eventually renting out whole auditoriums and selling out and making a shit ton of money on ticket sales and so on and so forth. Once you introduce money into your ghost business now you have reason to falsify things or change your ghost methodology because you can make money off of it right it seems to me like less research is being done when they start the business it may just be that it becomes less central to the plot of the movie but it looks like everything they're they're doing is more business related problem solving where are we going to store the ghosts You know, how are we going to interface with our customers? Right. There is a really clear distinction between their first encounter with the library ghost, where they're intent on collecting evidence and data, and every subsequent encounter, think about the Slimer encounter, where they're not concerned with proving the existence of ghosts anymore. They're just interested in what is essentially an extermination job. Right. And it's really interesting that the Ghostbusters are, again, very far separate from real-life 
ghost hunters, but they are also the most well-known representation of that whole field in media. Yeah. And in some ways they have more in common with quote unquote real life ghost hunters in their business ventures than they do with characters from other media that deal with ghosts or encounter ghosts. Right. And what's so funny about the business ventures here is what Miller said was that Ghostbusters replaces the sublime prowess of the ghost with, quote, parodic levity and, quote, all the banality of pest extermination. Mm -hmm. And that's why I really like just resting on that extermination metaphor, because it's so apt. It really is just that it's not about contacting your deceased relative and figuring out what they want so you can get rid of them it's an infestation and you call somebody with a special machine to come and and suck it up right (laughs) suck it up (laughs) and then the central problem that i think we've both been having with the movie is that the characters don't receive character development yeah the only change they experience from start to finish is one from failure to success as their business is recognized and admired by the public. Their business develops, but they don't develop as people. Right, and even you can see that their trajectory goes from, at the beginning, they are not in business, then they are in business, but they're not doing well, then they have financial success, but they're still not recognized as an official channel right so then at the climax of the film or right before it the mayor now recognizes them and sends them out on this mission so now they are the ghostbusters they've essentially received validation from the powers that be right not just essentially literally yeah they have so that brings us to the end of our episode can you believe it did we bust all of the ghosts because bustin makes me feel good as you can tell after two very full episodes on ghostbusters this was not an easy research light episode like we thought it would be not in the least but it was a lot of fun in its ways and very interesting and so unexpected and i love a twist oh y'all wanted a twist eh ghostbusters really makes a great object lesson for how monster theory works in tandem with other theoretical lenses how various readings and analyses can result in a plethora of equally valid interpretations so we've used several lenses here we've looked at fanthropology we have used feminist theory especially as it is connected to psychoanalytic theory we've looked at post-colonial theory through orientalism we've used a spiritualist lens and finished up with an anti-capitalist lens and all of this to really come to the conclusion that while ghostbusters has some good acting And it has some wonderful visual effects. An iconic song, which I would argue is the best thing that came from this movie. While we may not like it, we're not picking on it. It's just that 
analytically, it upholds a lot of dominant culture, and it's very majoritarian. That being said, because of that, it's a very important cultural artifact, and I'm really glad that we got to talk about it. Yeah. So if you want to hear us talk about more ghostly things, you can listen to our previous episodes wherever you find podcasts. And we would love if you would suggest us to your friends, if you would leave us a rating and a review on your podcatcher of choice. Do we still use the word podcatcher in 2023? I've never heard that word in my life. Also, rest in peach. Rest in peace, Stitcher. So, if you've been using Stitcher, go find something else. Hot tip. You can also email us, gwp2pod at gmail.com, or find us on Instagram at ghostswerepeople2. We would love to hear your comments, suggestions, and questions. You can follow us on Tumblr, yes, it is still alive, at Ghosts Were People 2. Once a day, it posts a different image or quote regarding ghosts. I upkeep that very rigorously. <laughs> it's really impressive. Devotedly. I even go on there to see what Quest has found. Thank you. Thank you. And I think that's it. I think we've promote ourselves as a good small business <laughs> does so beware of demonic dogs beware of misogynistic ghost exterminators if there's something strange in your neighborhood don't call us and Zool. <laughs> and as it says on the Ouija board goodbye, goodbye.